0: Welcome to the Kama Extractive podcast. I continue my conversations with uh, colleagues all over the world on the subject of fossil fuels and climate change. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Anthony Paul. Anthony Paul is a friend and an energy and strategy advisor from Trinidad and Tobago. He supports governments in maximizing value from oil and natural gas projects. Tony is presently a senior advisor to the National Directorate of Hydrocarbons and Fuels in the Ministry of Resources and Energy in Mozambique. Tony draws from 40 years in, petro- in the petroleum sector, working for developers and governments in Africa and the Caribbean islands. Tony, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast. I envy you being in the Caribbean islands. I do wish I was with you, but for now I will have to settle for being virtual.
1: Thank you very much, Sheila. I am in the Caribbean, but I only just got in from Mozambique, so I'm in quarantine. But I can see the green verdant green of the Caribbean. It's great to be home. Thanks, Sheila. Lovely.
0: So, uh, Tony, I thought I would uh, focus on discussing the notion of gas flaring, uh, because from my reading, uh, it's a major contributor to uh, carbon emissions. So, May I ask you to just take us to ground zero and explain to our listeners, what do we mean by gas
1: flaring? Sure. So most people are familiar with the term flare when they see this object in the sky that's lighting or on the ground for emergency. So basically a a flare is a fire, you know, and in the case of the oil and gas industry, flaring happens when deliberately Natural gas or gases that are produced through drilling process, or sometimes in refineries or petrochemical plants, gases are deliberately burnt, and they're burnt at the end of a, a burner tip, which is pretty much functions like a stove tip in a, a gas stove. But typically, it's remote, high in the sky, far away from people and property, so the heat and the gases don't endanger people. So that's that's typically a flare. That's what a flare is. And people associate flares with these fires that burn on and on. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason flares go on and on. And I can explain that as we go through this. But essentially, flares have a couple of purposes. One, they are there to burn excess gas that can't be used in some other way. And two, they're there as a safety measure in case there's an emergency in a refinery on an oil well, and gas that is being produced needs to be vented. It's vented safely, because once it goes through that chimney, that tower, it's burnt immediately. There's no need for the latest part of fire, so the fire is already there. So it's a safety feature, as well as a feature for, for this, you get rid of something you don't want. Is that second part that people are concerned about, about. Why are we getting rid of something we don't want? I'm causing problems so I hope that explains mm. a little bit what a flare is
0: sure um, sure I mean, so when you say excess or something that you don't want, what is it in the uh, extraction of uh, oil or gas, which creates excess and leads to material that, for economic and production purposes, isn't wanted
1: right, so that's a good point so. F- The the, the chemical and physical processes that generate oil also generate gas. Sometimes they're produced separately. Sometimes they're produced together. More often than not, they're produced together. And they are produced in the rocks below the earth and then stored in the rocks below the earth called the reservoirs. Now, quite often, the natural gas and oil are separated by gravity. Gas is lighter, so it goes to the top. Oil is heavier so it goes to the bottom but there's always some oil left in solution some gas rather left in solution in that oil so when that oil is produced that gas comes to the surface and it escapes from the solution or it's separated out now the reason it's fled in many cases is that oil is easy to handle you can put it in a tank and then move it Easily by a ship or some mechanism. Natural gas is more difficult to move. Now, the easiest way to move it, of course, is through a pipeline. But if you're producing, if you're producing in a place that's remote from pipelines or where you haven't got enough gas to create a downstream demand for that gas and therefore to build a pipeline, then that pipe, that gas has nowhere to go. Now you may ask, why not build a pipeline? Why not take it somewhere? And this this is the reality, and this is the reason there's so much flared gas. Oil is much more economically attractive to investors than natural gas. So companies would prefer to produce oil and just burn natural gas just to get the value from that oil. And that is where the problem comes in, when natural gas is produced as a byproduct of oil and not captured to be used. Hmm.
0: So from what I I gather from you then, uh, flaring is both a technique for overcoming practical uh, petroleum process and engineering uh, conditions, especially when it relates to leftover gas in oil, but it is also a commercial deliberate conscious decision to give preference to oil because pumping oil and selling oil is more profitable. Would that be correct?
1: That is correct. I mean, the, 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 the decision to, to use that gas commercially, in other words, to capture it and put it in the pipeline, for instance, is a function of the volume, the rate at which it comes out, and the market access for that gas. In other words, is there somebody who can take that gas and use it in a power plant or in a petrochemical plant? and pay the price of producing that gas and delivering it through that pipeline. So it is a commercial decision quite often. Hmm.
0: So we we have, uh, of course, onshore and offshore oil and gas operations. In terms of uh, the challenge from an engineering perspective and from a cost-effectiveness perspective of capturing gas, does it matter whether the operations are on or offshore?
1: Again, it comes back to volumes and distance. So deep water offshore gas is expensive to bring ashore simply because the pipelines may be far away and going through deep waters may create certain technical challenges to developing the building and keeping that pipeline in place. On land, it might be easier depending on the terrain the gas has to to cover and where it has to go. But that said, uh, if you look at gas flaring, the biggest growth in gas flaring in the last several years has been in the U.S. on land because the U.S. has found a lot of natural gas, but what people don't realize is a lot of natural gas is associated with oil in shale oil. And When they produce these shale oil wells, the natural gas comes out and they aren't always in close proximity to pipelines. So natural gas is flared a lot on land in the U.S. It's also flared a lot on land in Nigeria. So a lot of the flaring happens onshore. The flaring offshore tends to happen where there's very little consideration before approvals are given for development of how to use that natural gas. Uh, but it then comes down to commercial decision. So some of us may remember that Ghana has made significant discoveries of oil, as did Guyana recently. And both of them, in their early years, have been flaring very significant quantities of natural gas, you know, because not enough consideration was given at the decision to contract with companies as to what to do with that gas. And both countries, Ghana and Nigeria, have got deficits in power generation. Sorry, Ghana and Guyana, as I mentioned. So yes, both offshore and onshore, there were problems with natural gas flaring. Again, in each case, it comes down to commercial decisions.
0: Hmm. So you you say that there was not enough consideration at project design and uh, project uh, development stage. Do you mean consideration or do you mean that the host countries did not have enough understanding of uh, the trade-offs and have uh, perhaps after the fact, woken up to the fact that they are basically throwing away a valuable source of energy? Is it a lack of consideration or a lack of understanding?
1: I think it's a combination of factors. Certainly a lack of understanding of the economics, the technical con- considerations. Now the companies are very concerned about maximizing their return on the investment. And a big factor of that is the time to production. So the time to produce oil can be quite short. To produce gas can be elongated why because a gas gas projects have to have an offtaker and that means another party has to develop a plant that is a power plant a petrochemical plant a metals plant a mining plant to take that gas so there's another player in the chain which can delay the whole development so the oil companies push through the development plan very quickly and the governments tend not to have had earlier consideration or the ability to analyze both the technical aspects and the commercial and market aspects for the gas. So the government tends to find itself on the back foot, as it were, having to approve a free development plan without having themselves developed an alternative approach. So yes, it's largely with lack of understanding the, both the technical and commercial aspects of the field development.
0: So, by by uh, uh, fast tracking development, you mean uh, wanting to get as quickly to the from the stage of discovery project development to actual pumping of oil and 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 selling it into the market, because this is how our companies recoup investment, right?
1: Absolutely, and and the one of the reasons <laughs> countries fail at getting that balance right is that. In as much as oil companies have short term targets to add value to their shareholders, so do politicians and governments. Governments want to get revenue during their term of government, of power, between election cycles. So they're happy to fast track that. So, unless a country has a really well developed legal and policy framework that kind of locks in these considerations that aren't overrun overcome by political expedience. Because you and I know governments want revenue so they can spend it and do the things they need to do. So that is the, the, the challenge that a lot of developing countries have. How do you manage that pace so that the country's benefit is not completely or mostly eroded by these two other parties who have shorted-term incentives?
0: You put your finger on it, and and this takes me back to my earlier question of is it lack of understanding or is it lack of consideration? And, and I think the notion of political expediency is key because most uh, governments obviously want to be able to say uh, we have uh, commissioned this project and we are pumping oil. They think that that is a badge of honor for whatever the sitting government is, and and in a way, then the sovereign governments unintentionally are in cahoot with the uh, developer, albeit that they are motivated by different reasons. The one motivation is political experience and the other is the desire to quickly uh, extract the oil and get it to the market and begin to bring in revenues. But you've mentioned another factor. You you, you use the term off-taker. Can you spend a moment explaining to our listeners what you you mean by an off-taker? and why sure. the circumstances are different in the case of, of gas as opposed to oil.
1: That's a good point. It's, it's quite an important point too, because as you and I know, oil is fungible as the economists say. You can put oil in a boat and take it anywhere in the world. So whether, whether you have a refinery in the country that produces the oil or not, that oil has value. Natural gas can't be taken away from a country very easily. So you need a way to take that oil to a market. And that market is either, like I mentioned earlier, a power plant, a petrochemical plant, some kind of smelter that uses fuel or feedstock. Now, that entity that buys that gas and uses it is the offtaker. Now, if the offtaker is an existing entity in country, then you, you know how much volume it needs. And you can design a pipeline, if that were the case, to bring it to that that plant. Now, if the country capacity to take the gas is less than the produced gas, then you have to find another mechanism to get that gas to a market, to an off-taker. That may mean getting somebody to invest in a plant in country to use the gas, or a plant in country to convert that gas, let's say, to liquefied natural gas, that can then be exported. Or if you're a continental country, like Ghana, Nigeria, most of Africa, then taking some, an investor to build a pipeline system to take that gas to neighboring states. So in, in my case, in the case of Trinidad and Tobago, we're an island state. So we didn't have that luxury of a pipeline system to shear gas to neighboring states. So we had to have plants built to convert natural gas to ammonia, methanol, use it with iron and steel, and ultimately to liquefy natural gas for export. Those are the off-takers. The challenge comes when the off-takers are a separate entity to the upstream producers. And then you have negotiations on pricing, on schedule, and so on. So the whole project development, gets a little bit more complicated. And the companies are eager, as the politicians, to get as much revenue as possible, early as possible. So that, is, that is, discussion tends to get deferred unless somebody is pushing it. And that, I think, is where that, that question of how do we use gas and how do we select among the kinds of outtakers, the kinds of investments, plans, usages, in an early policy decision comes in to say, if gas were to be discovered, these are the choices we have, and this is what we need to start looking at very early on. If that isn't in place then what happens is as happened in ghana and guyana the gas will get fled while that discussion is ongoing
0: Hmm. so so basically in layman's terms um there's a ready market for oil uh there isn't a ready market uh, for gas these companies have to find a buyer negotiate and pre-agree the terms before uh, they can commit to the necessary investment in capturing and transporting uh, the gas, but, but, but that, you know the, the result of that is that it can uh, take very long uh, and it can also i suppose cost a, a bit of money. and so the easy solution is just to bypass it and because it is there as part of the resource, the way you you bypass it is by getting rid of it uh, uh, through uh, flaring uh so so I, I wanted to ask, um so we know, don't read uh Tony, that gas flaring is one of the major sources of carbon emissions uh, and 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 therefore are problematic from a climate change uh perspective. Uh, can you just speak briefly about uh what we know about the extent of gas flaring worldwide and what we know about? its potential contribution to uh, carbon emissions?
1: Yeah, so that's an important point. You know, so gas flaring is a significant part of the emissions into the atmosphere. But let me just put a couple of things in context here. So natural gas is mostly methane, but it also has droplets of oil in it. So when a flare burns, flares aren't 100% efficient, So many of those droplets get into the air, into the ground, into the water. Some methane isn't burnt, But most of the production is as, turns into carbon dioxide. And we know carbon dioxide to be a greenhouse gas. Methane by itself is a much more damaging um, greenhouse gas. It has about 80 something percent times as much impact on the environment uh, and the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. So burning it, reduces the impact so let's but there also the problem of natural gas being lost to the environment because the oil company's operation and is efficient in capturing it so there's that issue so the 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 question as to how much natural gas how much methane goes into the um, atmosphere and how much flaring impacts it is significant but it's not the major impact on greenhouse gases in the world you know, industrial activities where oil and where um, natural gas and oil are used, in, ag- ag- agriculture, transportation, they also have big, big impacts. And together, they are bigger than, um, than the, the flaring as a proportion of the contribution to greenhouse gases. So, yes, it is very big and it can be managed and it should be managed, but it's not the only thing that contributes to greenhouse gases.
0: Hmm. So um, d- based on what we know about uh first the potential economic value of capturing gas especially in countries where uh, there is an e- an obvious energy deficit and 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 also what we know about the adverse effects of uh, gas flaring uh are there countries uh major oil producers that Uh, ban gas flaring outright for purposes of either one of those reasons?
1: So Yeah, so many countries have done different things. And Nigeria, since 1984, has banned gas flaring. But it hasn't stopped. The political will hasn't been there. Flaring has increased. Now, Trinidad and Tobago put a unique clause at that time in their laws Mm -hmm. that if you produce natural gas, you must either use it or give it to the state for free. So companies, as we know, as I said earlier, want to invest their money in oil because it's much more profitable than a natural gas project. So the Trinidad government was able to capture that gas for free and then use that gas to develop a natural gas industry and, of course, remove the flaring. Now, the other thing that happened is that countries have in their laws or in their regulations or contracts a mechanism that says if you've not discovered natural gas, you, will, you must come up with a development plan to use that gas before your field development plan is approved. In other words, you must find a mechanism to develop that to use that gas. That makes it possible to get the gas used. Without that obligation, companies are free to burn that gas. So there are ways to get um, that gas to be used, either by giving it at a cheap price or free, to some, some investor, because part of the problem of making gas economic is that the cost of drilling and producing it might be expensive. If that company says, I can't invest in the rest of the money for this gas, then somebody else might. Somebody else who may have a lower rate of return, who you know, has, doesn't have the appetite to take your risk exploration and production. So coming up with those strategies to say, fine, this gas is being produced. Let's make sure it's being used rather than burnt. And there are multiple ways to do that, as we've seen in different countries, and I'll give them a couple of examples. Many countries have no flare legislation. so companies coming in know very well from the beginning how they need to operate. One way to prevent flaring, other than taking it out to an offtaker, is to reinject it back into the reservoir underground put it back into the, where it came from. That is done in many places. It can be expensive, but it's often cheaper than building pipelines and taking it off. So those are three options that are in place to make sure natural gas is not wasted and flared. Mm yeah so so
0: you you again, put your finger on it. you use the term "political will," because listening to you, there are potentially a number of win-wins. You know, uh, Trinidad and Tobago were pragmatic. They said, "Well, we won't let you flare it, but if you don't want it, we'll take it for free." So So you have a situation in which the state is not forfeiting a valuable economic asset, but you also have a situation in which the state is not imposing its will on uh, an investor. To uh, you know, retain an asset that the investor does not perceive to be economically feasible, and 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 certainly the the idea of uh, providing preconditions, which is also good for managing investor expectations, to say if you discover oil in a territory, you will be expected to do this. Uh, and, and I think short of uh, political will, I think solutions clearly seem to be there. And I think it's a great pity that um, not many countries, it seems, have made use of this. But uh, let's move on a little. Um, uh, relative to other substances and other emissions, uh, what is the contribution of gas to global warming? Has anybody gas flaring into global warming?
1: Oh yes, there's several studies done, and I don't have them on top of my fingertip. But the International Energy Association, Wood McKenzie has done some studies, and there's several studies. There's a group on an online, well, a, a, somebody I've met on a, a, an in- entity that does a lot of work around that, and Capterio.com, and they they do a lot of work on global, on flaring, looking at what countries are doing, looking at what companies are doing and measuring the impacts of different kinds of, of, of inputs or outputs into the environmental impact. So yes, so there's a lot of work on that. And there's, there's many studies that are available online that says this is the, the impact of agriculture on greenhouse gases. As we know, agriculture creates a lot of um, methane. This is the impact of natural wetlands, for instance. So the earth produces methane. This is the impact of transportation. This is the impact of flaring. This is the impact of venting, because in addition to flaring natural gas, companies also vent, meaning put it into the atmosphere as methane, instead of burning it to carbon dioxide. That's not as much, but yes, that's that's out there. The UN environmental program has done a big program recently, looking at the gap between the Paris Agreement expectations and what's happening, and in so doing, identified areas for addressing methane or using methane reduction, methane flaring reduction, as a way to close that gap. So there are studies on what the output currently is and has been, and on ways to reduce those by finding ways to reduce flaring, for instance. And those have been measured. You
0: you made mention to the Paris Agreement. Uh, the discussions around uh, uh, decarbonization of the environment, uh, do they include uh, measures to end gas flaring? And if so, uh, how far has that conversation gone?
1: It's, it's gone quite some ways. I mean, if you, if you, if you listen to what the companies are saying about net zero, I mean, a lot of that is a numbers game, but part of that is reducing flaring, reducing venting, Reducing accidental leakages, in other words, maintaining your pipelines, your infrastructure better, so methane doesn't escape into the atmosphere. methane is like I mentioned earlier, the main component of natural gas so yes, reducing flaring is a big part of the conversation on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and contributing towards the targets for for the Paris agreement
0: the um you know, the developing countries and the shortage of energy. When you speak to uh, development countries about this and the use of gas, uh, especially in Africa, what has been the response? Do do, do you think we are moving uh, towards understanding the importance of capturing this value? Are you seeing any meaningful policy change uh, in this area at all?
1: You know, Sheila the the tragedy is people put policy on paper but you don't always put them into action and even when they try to do those who are meant to make sure the policies are implemented aren't always either aren't always empowered to do it properly with the right capacity the right tools the right people or not held accountable so you know i mean one of the reasons gas is fled is that companies tend to negotiate very high prices for the gas that is not effective for power generation. So they're allowed to burn it. You know, and and those are the kinds of things that had a government put in place a counterbalance of penalties of flaring that would then bring the gas, the net gas price down, that discussion will go away. So the reason companies burn natural gas, flare it, is because it is economically efficient. It oftentimes is economically efficient because there's no penalty for it being done. And it is a penalty. The penalty isn't economically sufficient to to be a dissuader. So I made a mention earlier that Nigeria had since 1984 on their books made flaring illegal. I think in 2008, when the new petroleum act was reinforced, that was strengthened. And companies were given, I think, two years to end flaring. That never happened but there was no penalty and companies kept flaring. So the whole question of whether or not there's good policy is an important question. Yes, policy is important, but the enforceability of the policy comes down to the capacity and the empowerment of the regulator, and the way that regulator can be held accountable and not be interfered with by politicians because companies know that it's quite often easier to influence politicians than regulators. And getting that, shielding a regulator from interference, I think, is quite important. And getting Mm. the regulator the the power to do what the policy requires it to do is often missing.
0: Hmm. So uh, you you come back again to uh, political will, but also uh, the cost-benefit analysis. Uh, because with, with any one of these choices, there's a cost uh, to be borne by both the uh, company and the government. It seems to me in the space where uh, companies do as they wish, the, the cost accrues to the state. But in the yes. case where the state puts its foot down and say, you want a flare gas, and if you do, it's going to cost you. Suddenly, the economics of the project changes, uh, doesn't it, uh, uh, yes. uh, Tony? And and compels the developer to rethink the the business model because this business model is premised upon the developer having the right of first refusal. But if you take that away, then uh, suddenly it's a game changer, isn't it?
1: And that, and that's that's the technique developed countries use. You know, they put harsh penalties in place for not complying with environmental issues. So the companies then say, fine, this is an economic decision. Let's make the right decision for, the, for themselves. And, and that, that's a very important point, Shida, getting the right balance so that economically, the company does the right thing. You know, and you, you made the, the point that the companies make the decisions um, based on their own drivers, and sometimes it's, it's, it's wrong to force them, you know, with, with the wrong drivers. So, getting that balance right as to what is useful, what is workable, and what is economic makes sense. And in, in the case of Trinidad, for instance, here's, here's the, the, how Trinidad figured it out. So, we looked at the oil producers and we knew the kind of economic rate of return they wanted. And it was high. And oil, oil could make that high return. Natural gas, putting a pipeline, selling it, did not make economic sense in their rates of return. We figured that even if those projects made no rate of return, even if the ones were losing money, then it would be economically benefit to the country. Because some downstream industry, some off-taker, a power plant, for instance, will have natural gas at a price they can afford and provide power to other industries, to so people's homes, to hospitals. So we saw Economics of development different than companies, and because we tend to take economics from the point of view of the company's perspective, for instance, we tend to write off potential projects. There's not many economic models a way to capture the value of the use of the product. We tend to use the value. The value tends to stop at the sales point of the product, and that's where I think our economic models need to be shifted a little bit to show the value of investing in that product. Now, the problem with that is that it often requires the state to be the investor. And we know from going back to the 80s what happened with state participation in many, in many industries and how that has changed to today. And getting state companies to be efficient has been a challenge. So it's a it's a complex issue, but it's not an insurmountable one, I don't think.
0: Yeah, but I I think also Tony that uh, th- there is enough brains around the table to uh, you know uh, address the complexity. I mean, you and I know uh, that uh, one of the issues that distinguishes Trinidad and Tobago in the way that uh, the island state approached. The development of uh, the country's, I guess, resources is really based on leadership and a vision and a commitment and a relentless commitment to ensure that those uh, resources were used responsibly because uh, the leadership understood that uh, they are finite. My genuine sense is that the absence of leadership, a clear vision, and a commitment politically to do the right thing often is the difference between. Making the right decisions, protecting uh, regulators and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, making sure that they are free to implement laws is the difference between success and failure. Th- this is how I see it. And and, and uh, I think uh, the island state of Trinidad and Tobago makes for a good example of that.
1: You're yeah, absolutely right, Sheila. Those are the three elements that made that work. a a strong leadership, a clear vision, and a commitment to making the most of the resources you have. Absolutely right.
0: Well, on that note, Tony, uh, it was lovely speaking with you. And I'm very glad that uh, you are are now uh, here on the continent, albeit virtually. And I'm certain that uh, the uh, government of Mozambique will be better off for having you, but more importantly, for listening to you. Thank you very much for Uh, indulge in the Sheila Kama Extractive podcast.
1: Thank you, Sheila. It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Good luck with the rest of the podcast.